All right. Why don't you turn to James chapter 4, please? James chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And the message is entitled, Watch Your Mouth. You know, I don't know if you've ever read A.W. Tozer, but him and James probably are related. You know, there's an axiom in geometry that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Straight shooters, I'm sure they weren't the most popular in their day. People who speak forth the word of God straightforward usually are not like that much. We have them in the Old Testament, have them in the New Testament. We've had them through the history of the church. James is like that. Now, the book of James can be seen in a five-fold division. Faith in constriction is chapter 1. Faith in contradiction is in chapter 2. Faith in competition is in chapter 3. And faith in confliction is in chapter 4. And faith in vindication is in chapter 5. He just goes straight for the juggler. He doesn't have time to mess around. He's talking to Christians who are not walking right. The content of chapter 4 is faith in confliction by living through one's old sin nature. The source of carnal conflicts are given in verse 1 through 3 of the chapter. The outcome of yielding to carnal conflicts is then given in verse 4 through 6. And the counsel to overcome carnal conflicts is then stated in the same chapter, verse 7 and 10. And then the critical words in carnal conflict are in our text, verse 11 and 12. And as you keep going, the presumptuous attitude of carnal conflicts is given in 13 through 15. And finally, the sin of pride, the source of all carnal conflict, is given in verses 16 and 17. The sin of pride. Pride. The background to all this is the worldliness of believers by the wisdom of the world. Due to arrogant pride, assuming independence from God, whose only solution is to repent, humble themselves, and submit to God in obedience. Remember, the audience is Hebrew Christians. He's not talking to pagans. Notice now James continues to deal with the um, worldliness of the believer living by the wisdom of the world and yielding to sin nature, confronting them for defaming other believers. And it's characterized by three things. Let me read here verse 11 and 12. It says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? The three characteristics here of the confrontation of the famed believers as follows. First, you have the practice of speaking evil. 
the first portion of verse 11. Secondly, you have the perverseness of speaking evil, the remainder of verse 11. And then third, you have the problem of speaking evil, verse 12. He begins with the practice of speaking evil. Notice James is still addressing believers who are not submitting themselves to the authority and the will of God. In fact, beginning chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, he has identified them with many carnal characteristics. In verse 1, living in quarrels and conflicts. Verse 1, um, they live for their pleasure. Verse 2, doing everything to obtain and end up empty. Verse 2, not having from God because they don't ask Him. Verse 3, asking God for the wrong reasons, selfishness. Then He identified them by their unfavorable relationship to God in verse 4, 5, and the middle of 8. In 4, they were adulterers. In 4, they were friends of the world. In 4, they were enemies of God. In 5, they were unfaithful to the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, in the middle, they were sinners. Doesn't mean they weren't saved. But they're living in the flesh. Then he indicated to them their need to repent by ten positive imperative commands. Not suggestions, but ten imperative commands. First, from seven to ten, verse seven, to submit to God. To resist the devil, verse seven. To draw near to God, verse eight. To clean their hands of their sinful deeds, verse 8. To purify their hearts, verse 8. To lament, mourn, and weep over their sinfulness, verse 9. To let their carnal laughter and joy be turned into mourning and gloom, verse 9. And to humble themselves in the sight of God, verse 10. Wow. Wow. Who's he talking to? Hebrew Christians. The majority of the church at first were all Hebrews who had been converted. Then later on, the Gentiles came in. Now notice, now when we get to verse 11, James continues to address believers who are not submitting themselves to the authority and will of God. Listen to those words. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. So he having given ten positive imperatives now, he now gives the one negative about their speech. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. The imperative command is in the present tense occurring at that time. So what he's dealing with is going on at the time that he's writing to these individuals. The imperative command is in the plural, indicating it was not an isolated case, but rather existing among them. Imperative command literally means stop speaking evil. You as a parent know what James is talking about when you've been dealing with your son or daughter. He said, I want you to stop and I want you to stop right now. That's what he's saying. Notice he already told them back in chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, 
But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil things are present. So as believers, we still have the choice whether we yield to God to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, yielding to Him, or resort to our old sin nature and we put just a spiritual Christian sticker over it. Notice the thing we must understand is that James is not teaching the prohibition of a believer to make judgments over the visible sinful conduct of another believer. That's not the context here. Because people run with Scripture out of context. Well, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Really? Well, hopefully if you're one of those, you get cleared up this morning. This particular context is not that. If it was, then this would contradict the nature of God. That God is holy. Again, he's addressing who? Believers. Brethren, Adelphus. Three times he says it. God is holy and cannot condone sin or approve it in any way, as you remember when we studied Habakkuk 1.13. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for the Lord Yahweh your God. I am holy. Now because of that, and he's made us his people, 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So we are related to a holy God. A holy God demands that judgment be made about sin. God judges our sin and commands us to make judgments over our own lives. Paul the Apostle in um, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says the following. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So you are, and I are to judge our lives every day. We, listen, let me give you a secret. You live with you. You know exactly what you do. You know exactly what you think. You know exactly what goes on. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, Galatians 6, 4. So I'm to live my life as unto the Lord. I'm not to worry about anybody else, yet I have a responsibility to judge, but he's not talking about this right now, okay? First is the vertical, right? I have to be right with God, okay? This would... um. Also contradict Paul's practice as he disciplines sinful saints and false doctrine if we can't judge. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, remember the young man was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul said to remove that man from the church and to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple principle. We do not turn over non-believers to Satan. They belong to him already. You turn over believers who get caught up in sin and depart from the Lord that they might repent and come back. Clear? All right? 
It's the same with Hymenius and Alexander who made a shipwreck of the faith in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Turn them over to Satan. People say, well, they weren't believers. They're believers. You don't turn non-believers over to Satan. And they cannot make shipwreck of the faith. These people are in the faith. And he names them by name because they're probably very well known and they're dangerous to the church. Second Timothy 2, 17 through 18 says, And their message will spread like a cancer. Hymenius, Philetus, two other guys are of this sort. Who have strayed, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed. And listen, and they overthrow the faith of some. You cannot stray from some place you never were at, and you cannot deceive someone from where they weren't. Uh, it's just not that you don't have to be that smart. You just have to read English. Okay? Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his work, 2 Timothy 4.14. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us, with malicious words and not content with that he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church third john verse 9 and 10 so if paul was if james was saying that we're not to judge then this would be a contradiction also right but there's no contradiction it's something very obvious that has to be made a judgment and Certain things have to be done. But this would also contradict the command for the believer to make a judgment and discipline believers. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. I don't think Paul would be too popular today. If you stand for the truth, you're not popular today. And I'm talking in the church. I'm not talking outside the church. Second Thessalonians 3, 12 through 15 says, Now these, those who are such we commend and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary and and doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's always the warning, the caution, the confrontation. The ultimate goal is restoration. If there isn't an acknowledgement of the sin, the rebellion, or the error, as a parent, you know that you want to reconcile yourself to your son, your daughter, and you're looking for confession. You're looking for admission of what's wrong so that you can deal with the situation on the level it has to be less so that everything's good. But if they deny it, if they contradict it, if they insult you, then you do not disappoint them. 
you deal with them. But even in dealing with consequences, your goal still, because you love them, is restoration, is it not? Hmm. The thing we must understand James is teaching is, or shouldn't come to that conclusion, is that the prohibition of believers to talk against or about each other. That's what he's talking about. The phrase to speak evil means to speak malicious words about or against someone, defaming them. The word appears four times in the New Testament. Twice in this verse for the believer doing it to another believer. Two other times in First Peter for the defaming of believers by non-believers through false accusations. So this sin is done by unbelievers to believers and believers to believers. You find those in First Peter 2.12 and 3.16. Now, the prohibition has nothing to do with if the information is true or false. It's not even dealt with. But rather, the intent and motive to criticize and find fault, to defame or destroy the name and character of a person. This is the focus, okay? This is the context. By belittling, deprecating, decrying, casting aspersions on someone, criticizing someone, giving them a bad name, defaming, slandering, libel, running down, insulting, reviling, maligning, vilifying, slurring. Modern vernacular, bad-mouthing, dissing, pulling to pieces, talking smack. Wow. The tongue is a fire, James says, a world of iniquity, untamed and unruly evil, full of deadly poison, James 3, 6, and 8. He deals with the tongue in every chapter. He dedicates all one chapter to the tongue, chapter 3. If you were with us in our in-depth study, you know what James says about that tongue. Hmm. You know, God spoke and Judge Korah, if you remember, with the 250 that accompanied them. The earth opened up and swallowed them because they spoke against Moses and Aaron in number 16. Not that there's anything wrong with asking questions. Not that there's anything wrong with if you disagree on something. That's not what God ever prohibits. It's the intent of the heart for malicious, for destruction of character and what God is doing. This is what God deals with all the time. Very important. The main source of speaking about and against another Christian with ill intent or motive is pride. Listen to the Proverbs. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom, Proverbs 13.10. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them, Proverbs 14.3. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs 16.18. Satan fell 
by pride. Second to God. There are many other reasons that spring from pride. Envy. Wanting what you have. Someone wants what you have. Envious. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs 14.30 Jealousy, despising you for what you have. Wrath is cruel and anger is a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Proverbs 27.4 Bitterness, deep-seated resentment for whatever reason you fill in the blank. And by the way, it may be legitimate for the white you are bitter or unforgiving. It was a horrific thing done to you. But since you're a Christian, you're not the harbor. You have no excuse. That is impossible. You got it. You can't do it. You've got to go to God. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. Proverbs 14.10 Hate, a deep-rooted abhorrence of a person against, for whatever reason, you can fill it in. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's a general command to every Christian who would ever accept Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, but if, you, if this happened to you, you're the exception. None whatsoever. The practice of um, speaking evil is to cast suspicions on people. You see people say, well, if you knew what I know about him, well, what do you mean by that? Interesting. It's the heart problem, right? And we use our brain to exercise our heart problem. The perverseness of speaking evil comes in the remainder of verse 11. James notice declared the um, indictment against the believer speaking against or about another believer, that of being above the law. Listen to his words. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Now the person speaking evil of his brother maliciously refers to objective truths. Things they said, things they did, and you know, things known and heard. The person judging his brother with malice refers also to subjective truth. Though the facts may be true, the judgment is motivated by ill intent. The word judges, crino, is to be of the opinion to come to a determined conclusion of right or wrong. And so in your mind, my mind, we get it all together and we say, yep, this sucker needs to be hung. I mean, we are positive. 
the position and authority that is not his is being determined there as an equal to his brother. He's exalting himself. Again, the context is not speaking against judging right on sin. Are we clear on this? Okay. He's talking about destructive words to hurt or destroy a person. The Greek scholar Lenski says the following, quote, and I'm quoting him, the subjective rests on the objective. Together they form a syllogism which is compact and straight to the point. Being conjunctive, meaning tied together, not disjunctive. The reference is the same person, the one speaking evil and judging is the same person having one article for both verbs. Both speaking evil and judges are participles in the present active tense. This was going on by the individual. So James has very specific people. He's not naming them. And there's more than just one by the plural that we've seen. The question is, what exactly does James mean by law? James is not talking about the Mosaic law because he's not writing to Jews under the law. James is talking to Hebrew Christians so he cannot be referring to the law of Moses. Context, context, context. It had been fulfilled by Christ. Has he addressed them as brothers? Does he address them as brothers because they fulfilled the law? Or because Christ fulfilled it for them? <laughs> the law refers to the law of love. Without the article in the Greek, the law of liberty and royal love law that he's mentioned already in chapter 1, verse 25, 2, 8, pointing back to Leviticus 19, 16. God's love. Both being protected by the law of love. The one running down his brothers demonstrates his lack of agape love. Declaring his brother does not have the right to the protection of this law of love and judges the law of love to be wrong. So they see themselves above and distinct from the one they're judging. Notice James declares the indictment against the believer speaking against or about another believer, that of being superior to this law. The resulting indictment is progressive in logic and reason. Listen to, listen to his words. But if you judge the law, and we already established what law we're talking about, law of love, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The present statement, but if you judge the law, is based on the previous two truths. The believer spoke maliciously against his brother, and judge them. Therefore, he is doing so. He spoke maliciously, judging the law. He believes in self-exception to the law. 
Welcome to the family of humanity. When we've got an agenda. Or we've been offended. Worse yet, if we think we've been offended. The connection, notice, is that no one can malign a brother without doing it to the law of love at the same time. The vilifier is a usurper of the law of love. The vilifier is a lawbreaker of the law of love. The conclusion is obviously logical and true. Listen to the words. But if you're not a doer of the law, or I'm sorry, but you are not a doer of the law, but a judge, it's a declaration. The word but is a conjunction of continuation, not contrast. It would be better translated and or moreover. What is going to be stated is based on what has proceeded. The believer is not being a doer of love at this point. There is no article accompanying the word law confirming it refers to agape love, not the law, Moses. So it's confirmed. There's no bad interpretation here. We're not wrong in our interpretation. The believer is a judge of love. He has judged that his brother should have no right or benefit of protection by agape love. He has judged himself worthy and proficient to judge the law of love to be wrong. Wow. When you and I choose to live under agape love, we choose to deny ourselves to yield and resort to our flesh. We say no to ourselves by the power of God. Even when you have all the right to do so. Jesus was um, questioned by a lawyer one day as to which was the greatest commandment, as you know, summarizing the two tables of the law. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And this is the first and greatest commandment, the priority, the vertical. The second is you should love your neighbor as yourself, the horizontal. The one of those two cannot be separated. The vertical is the most important. I have to be right with God first. I have to go to Him before I can go to the horizontal. It won't work. The law and the prophets are summed up by these two. The priority and proficiency of agape love is absolute. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. In 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, agape love is to be the motive for the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
many people use the gifts of the Holy Spirit to bring attention to themselves or to exalt themselves above others or to compare themselves to others. The motive is wrong. Now, though the gift may be exercised, the body and people may receive the benefit, but that person will get no reward. Done for the wrong reasons. In verse 1 of that chapter, let me just walk you through it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not agape, I become a sounding brass and clinging cymbal. There's just a noisemaker. Verse 1. Look at me, look at me, look at me. We don't want to look at you. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not agape, I am nothing. Absolutely nothing. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not agape, it profits me nothing. Because God is not impressed with how much I do or what I do. He's impressed why and how I do it. What is my motivation? Agape love is all sufficient for life for every believer. Listen from verse 4 to 8. Verse 4, agape suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Verse 5, agape does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, holds all things, endures all things. Verse 8, the first portion, agape, never fails. I can't do that. You got it. You can put the name of Jesus there. You can go all through it, no problem. Put your name to the first one. Xavier suffered. Can't even get started. If I depend on Jesus, I can go through it. And every time I have yielded to God's agape love, I have never failed. Every time I have chosen my right to not yield to love, but to my flesh, I have failed drastically. Every time. The Apostle John has much to say about agape love. In 1 John 3, 11, he says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should agape one another. 1 John three fourteen, We know that we have passed from death to life because we agape the brethren. He who does not agape his brethren abides in death. Pretty heavy words. 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not agape in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.23, And this is His commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and agape one another, and He gave us, as He gave us, commandments. John is, his little five-chapter epistle is just full of abiding and agape love. 1 John 4, 3, 4, 7. Beloved, let us agape one another, for agape is of God, and everyone who agapes is born of God and knows God. 1 John four eleven. Beloved, if God so agape us, we also ought to agape 
one another. One more, 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I agape God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not agape his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, we are to do as much as possible to be one with our brethren and to love them. There are situations that you try and try and it's impossible. So he's not dealing with those. When that happens, when you walk away and there's nothing you can do about it, you make sure you don't harbor bitterness, envy, and resentment, and you continue to pray for them. You don't pray that God break their teeth in their mouth. You, you pray that God deal with their hearts so that you can protect your own heart so you're right with God. Is that clear? Okay? The perverseness of speaking evil is exalting oneself above people. Third, the problem of speaking evil. Verse 12. James pointed out the most obvious truth in the progressive argument of the believer who criticize and judge in the place of God by harsh and condemning words against a believer when God alone has that right. Listen to his words. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. He simply stated that there is only one who can judge. Listen, impartially, God. All of us cannot judge perfectly. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't judge something to be wrong with time. But sooner or later, we are tainted. We have emotions. We have different things. The phrase lawgiver is used as a substitute for God the Father, having the article, the lawgiver. Man is lawless. Man is a lawbreaker. Man is accused by every law. If we weren't lawbreakers, we wouldn't need traffic laws. You look up there, speed limit. You know how far you go. We trust you. <laughs> Every time you see 70, you push it to 72. 80. It says wet paint don't touch. You touch it. The one who gave the law to man. Now, James is not contradicting his mention of the law of love by mentioning now the lawgiver. This one lawgiver is omniscient. He knows all things, every thought and intent of the heart. You and I don't. This one is the one who is able to speak words and judge every person. He simply stated this lawgiver is the only one who is able to save and destroy. The idea behind the ability to save means spiritually and eternally, like the sheep and the goat in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed are my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. 2534. The idea behind destroying is to perish for all eternity. He then will answer, 
them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, um, you did it not to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Matthew 25, 45 and 46. Sheep from the goat. He's the only one that can judge. This is the only one qualified to speak harsh words to sinners and saints. Does that mean that we're not the judge? That we're not what we're talking about. We're talking about the will of evil intent maliciously to destroy without having the proper ability to judge. Different. Notice James pointed his finger to the believer who spoke and judged by harsh and condemning words against another believer in rebuking sarcasm. You are no one. Certainly not God. That's what he's saying. Look at the words. Who are you to judge another? He's using sarcasm. Are you perfect? You have all the facts? You're telling me your heart is right? See, he was a man like the one he was speaking maliciously about or against. Again, the entire passage is dealing with words that are in, aimed at injuring, maligning, and destroying character. Some people, they believe that's their gift. They're Tasmanian devils. Physicians of no value. Miserable comforters. The relatives of Joe's friends. The words are motivated by pride and the interest of self. The word you is emphatic. The text does not speak against confronting visible or open sin again in a believer or the church. Notice he was a man like the one he was judging, who he was denying the right to the protection of love. Sinna is viewed more critically in the life of others. My sin always looks worse on you. I, I can understand why God forgives me, but you, I don't know. I know why I did that, and I, I, but, but you, you, you're a rat. That's how we think. Notice he was a man unlike God who had a sin nature that has the potential to distort truth to one's own view. As a believer, he's talking to Christians. All of us are tainted. All of us have partial knowledge. All of us can draw different conclusions with the same facts. All of us are flawed. He was a sinner saved by grace in need of the agape love of God, to not abuse other believers and protect himself. Constantly resisting pride, that has to be the key in our lives. Constantly trying to walk in humility. Constantly being examples of Christ. 
Listen to Paul in Romans 14.10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10. Wow. You remember Miriam was struck with leprosy for speaking against Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman in Numbers 21. The Hebrew indicates that she was the instigator. Her judgment was malicious and God struck her with leprosy. By the way, that's a context where God says that Moses was the meekest man upon the earth. He didn't even try to defend himself. He let God take care of it. The scriptures are um, clear on the matters of um, malicious, critical words of judgment. You'll identify the scripture I'm going to read because Holly Weird and all the pagans always throw it in our face. Out of context. Listen carefully. Jesus spoke again speaking critically since serious words of self-righteous judgment. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and teaching the disciples not to be like them. Listen. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank, the beam, the railroad tie in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, actor. First remove the plank in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the plank from your brother's eye. Romans 7, 1 through 5. The world non-believers always throw that in our face that we're not to judge when it comes to morality, all that. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a judgment of a hypocrite, a Pharisee, a scribe, self-righteous judgment. When you are making yourself the standard to be accepted before God. Even if you could keep all the law, it would still be you fulfilling it. It would be self-righteousness. You're only accepted in what Christ fulfilled, his righteousness. Wow. Paul spoke about critical words in matter of conscience. Listen, Romans 14, 1 through 4, he says, um, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputations over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does eat judge him who eats. For God has received them. Who are you to judge another's uh, servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now, the context he's speaking about eating different foods. Some believe you could eat meat. Others were more for vegetables. That's what he's talking about. That has nothing to do with our spirituality. Okay? Now, some of you may choose, and I may choose, or somebody else, that I'm going to change my life. I'm going to eat a little better, you know, because I'm getting up in age. Fine. But if you start saying, this is the way you should eat, this is biblical, because Daniel did it, and, and in, before Noah's day, they were, you know, before the fall, it was all vegetarians. Yeah, but also God killed them all. So, what about that? Um, listen, I've eaten pig ears. I've eaten uh, everything. Guts. Kidneys, heart, eyeballs, 
uh, brains, whatever. I've prayed over it and I've eaten it. All right? It has nothing to do with spirituality. Now, you may eat a little healthier and you may stick around. I may beat you to heaven. But it doesn't make you spiritual, right? The privilege of judging mankind has been given to the Son by the Father, as you know. Listen to John five twenty six to 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man, the God-Man, the last Adam. And he is the only one that judges us completely. Now again, I don't want you to walk out of here with the wrong concept. We are to judge sin. We are to judge each other's lives according to the God's word. But he's dealing specifically with a malicious intent to destroy person and character. Okay? The saints will stand before the beam of seed of Christ, as you know. They will suffer loss or gain. It is recorded in Romans 14, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Wood, hay, or stubble, silver, gold, or precious stone. You put wood, hay, or stubble, man, it makes a flash, but it's gone. Silver, gold, precious stone, silver and gold gets purified. All the junk comes out of it. It's valuable. Gems can be heard by fire. So in that day, you and I are going to put all our goodies on the fan belt there, the conveyor belt, and it's going to move through. And some Christians are going to be waiting at the end, and we're going to hear, next. Now, are they going to take you, Gabriel, and give you drop kick you into hell? You're out of heaven? No. Because you're saved as by fire, Paul says. But God wants you to receive reward as well as I. So we're to do what we do for the right reasons. Why and how I do what I do. Not to be seen of men like the Pharisees. That's what the context of many of these verses in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're there right now. We'll be going through it. The problem of speaking evil is that we are sinners like all people. Welcome to the club. And so James um, confronted these Hebrew Christians for defaming other believers. Characterized by these three things that still apply to us. The practice of speaking evil is to cast suspicions on people. I don't care whether you're Mexican, Hebrew, Greek, whatever. We all go back to one man, Adam, and we inherit his sin nature from him. The perverseness of speaking evil is exalting oneself above people. That is in the heart of our heart. Desperately wicked above all things. Jeremiah 79. And the problem of speaking evil is that we are sinners like all people.
Not until you take your last breath will you be finished. Right now, you are still under construction. And so let's learn the lesson that James has played out so eloquently. Father, thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. We pray you deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to refine us. We continue to place ourselves next to your word and allow it to set the standard, Lord. And that we not deceive ourselves. We not forget what we look like in that mirror and walk away. But the Lord, we would correct what we see wrong by going to you. And that we may be able to love one another. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You live here. You live this way one way or the other at one time or another as a non-believer because that's our sin nature. God wants to forgive you of all your sins. God wants to do a work in your life. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can call upon him and he will forgive and save you right now. Those of you who are believers in the message is very applicable to you. You've got some real problems with some people. You need to humble yourself and repent and ask God to forgive you and get right with those people. If you want to be born again, maybe over the internet or out there on the radio, this is your prayer to God right now, and he's going to save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.